John chapter 12. I'm going to start us off in verse 55 of chapter 11. I'm going to give us a running start. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and were asking one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Surely he will not come to the festival, will he? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. We're getting ready to have accounted to us that which was mentioned back in chapter 11, verse 2, where it says, Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Uh, that reference there back in chapter 11, we're now going to get to see that. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Martha served. That's interesting. That, that sort of equates with what we know about her, too. That's very interesting. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. I'm gonna stop there. This, this is, a, mm -hmm. is a example of the progressive denigration of Judas. Yeah. By the way, he doesn't show up so bad at the general understanding of Judas is as, as, uh, as someone who had a very strong understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to do and be, and Jesus simply was failing to accomplish that. So he thought, well, if I get him arrested, that'll force him to go ahead and do what Messiahs do and start the rebellion against Rome and be victorious. Well, unfortunately, that's not what happened. Well, over time, he got vilified for what he did, and hence you see this little remark here about him uh, not really caring about the poor, but he wanted to steal the money uh, because he kept the common purse. This is, only, this is the only place, however, as far as I know, where it references him as doing that. So. Yeah. Well, they you know, they want to make sure we we didn't have our own opinion on that. No, no, no. Yeah. He, he's evil. He's bad. He's 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 scum. Thank you, John. Or whichever I mean, it's John just that it's not just not it's not bad enough that he betrays Jesus. I mean, come on. It's not bad enough that Satan kind of enters into him to do that. No, no, no. We got to make him a thief too. What was his? Oh, Judas. Uh, 
background? What wasn't? Did he have military background? Uh, Rebel. You get that from. Um, you're, you're confusing Simon the Zealot with okay. Judas Iscariot, but you're also getting that from um, the king, the movie The King of Kings, where Barabbas is depicted as. It, it, it might as well be the movie Jesus and Barabbas because he and Barabbas has a massive role in the film. He's a revolutionary and he's trying to defeat the Romans, and Judas is sort of his lieutenant who then comes over to Jesus' side. So you're, you're pulling that from the movie The King of Kings, <laughs> Jeffrey Hunter playing Jesus. I don't so remember. <laughs> It's That's a horrible right. film, but at any rate, better looking Jesus. <laughs> well, yeah, but nevertheless. Okay, let's um, let's look. Okay, we've got this is happening in Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Martha is serving, which we've heard about them before, and that's what Martha does. Whereas Mary is serving Jesus, and she does it by anointing his feet with a pound of pure nard. And it was such a fragrant gift that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. <laughs> Judas gets ticked off and says, what, what, we should have sold this so we give the money to the poor. <laughs> well, Jesus' response is, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, not surprisingly, this is one of the stories that is found in all four Gospels, at least in a form or one form or another. So let's go and look at Mark. So you know, leave a marker there or something. And go look at Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, that's interesting. Hmm. Simon the leper. Uh, it must be ex-leper. Uh, <laughs> he's obviously someone he's healed. In the house of Simon the leper, he sat at the table. A woman, unidentified, came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard. And she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. Uh-oh. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was this ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. Could actually keep going. She has done what she could. Um, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body, therefore, there beforehand for its burial. Huh. Interesting. So the place is the same. The name of the, the person who owns the house is different. However. It's someone who Jesus has apparently healed, Simon the leper, and Lazarus was someone whom Jesus really healed by raising him from the dead. Okay, and then it's a woman who comes and breaks, and it's, it's a jar of alabaster. That's a little bit different, but it has pure nard in it. It has nard in it. 
And then some people get angry. They're not identified who, but some people get angry. And their statement is exactly the same as Judas's and John. You know, this money could have, this ointment could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And Jesus' response to them is identical pretty much as it is in John. You have the poor with you always. She's done something for me. You don't always have me with you. She's getting me ready for my burial. So it's clearly the same story. Now the big difference is, of course, not just that this is happening in Simon the leper's house and the woman isn't identified as Mary of Bethany. It's that she anoints not his feet in Mark, but his head. That's pretty different. And she's well, pouring a pound of this off? Yeah. A pound of liquid, basically? 12 or, ounces, according to this version. Of, it's a Roman pound, which is only 12 ounces. 12 ounces. Oh, well. Just so over half a pound, can <laughs> we agree pretty, on that? It's, it's a, a lot. It's a lot. Right? Large, a lot. He he could have, she could have drowned him Just sad. The mental image I have is yeah, rather funny. <laughs> <laughs> but, Slow anointing. But here she puts it on his head. And she doesn't wipe it off. Nope. Of course, it'd be harder to wipe off your hair than it would your feet. Probably. Yeah, it really sounds like a mess. Maybe she was. <laughs> sounds like a mess. It would be even more sexual that way if she was taking her hair oh, yeah. and using it to wipe his head off. Yeah, that would be even more sexual. Although there, the image of wiping the feet off, there's a sexual connotation there, too. Yeah. She had a foot fetish. Well, it also, also strikes me that... The, <laughs> well, just, well, there was that... Well, Jesus, Jesus is, is a little it? less... Uh, little less uh, you know, gooped up. Yeah, uh, so he looks. He looks a little more Jesus-like yeah. without his, his hair. Feet, you know, yeah. You put that stuff on his hair. I mean, he's got to be a mess. That's got to be a mess, no, and sure it, smells good, though. No, but consider the race and the country, and the complaints that I have heard is that it's very hard to keep your hair um, soft, and it it dries out because of that of the. Yeah, this would keep it from drying out <laughs> and smelling right. And, and smell too. <laughs> sure, the Greeks would put, um, sure. and yeah, the, actually that whole area, would put, they would put um, olive oil in their hair mm-hmm. to keep their dues. So the differences between between John and Mark oh, are as head. follows. The name of the pr- house, no identity for the woman who does it, and that the head is anointed and not the feet. Otherwise, oh, and that Judas isn't identified as being the and one no who whines. As I or, said, or, or Martha. well, Martha isn't mentioned at all, and the woman isn't identified who does this. But it's still the same story. Fascinating. It also takes place at about the same time, a couple of days earlier, uh, later, actually. Uh, this happens just two days before the Passover, not six. But um, it's still about the same time, which is very fascinating. An interesting coherence between Mark and John. Let's take a look at Matthew. Matthew 26, 6 through 13. Matthew 26, 6 through 13. Okay, now while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and I remember Matthew is, of course, using Mark as his basic outline, so it's not going to be a surprise if there are a lot of connections and equalities here. So, now while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. 
Can you already see a couple of differences? The identification of what it is is now gone. It's no longer nard, principally. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, and now it's just disciples, not a couple of people who are hanging around. Why this waste for this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor? But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. So here we have essentially the same thing we have in Mark, just cleaned up a little bit. The identification of the ointment as nard has been dropped. We still don't have an identification of who the woman is. The house still belongs to Simon uh, the leper, and of course Bethany is still the town that it occurs in. And there's complaining about it, and it's the same basic complaint, but um, uh, the... Um, the amount of money is not de delineated. Uh, for this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. No longer 300 denarii, but a large sum. What, this is all close to the Passover. Uh -huh. I read somewhere, I thought, that uh, it was a Jewish custom at the Passover to give gifts to the poor. Mm, well. So wouldn't they be a little ticked off sure. if they couldn't give any they're gifts thinking, to the poor? They're thinking exactly they, along <laughs> that line. Okay. Now, keeping, keeping with that with the connections and of course it's his head who is anointed that that is anointed not his feet so Matthew follows Mark that way but he does clean it up and simplify the story a little bit we've seen this many times looking between Mark and Matthew how Matthew will be one of those who simplifies the story cleans up some of the awkwardness and the verbiage and that kind of thing all right it's interesting that, that John also really seems to I mean, obviously, there's there's juice left over when she gets done because sure. he says, you know, she, she's done this so that she can keep it for mm -hmm. later on. Mm -hmm. the, uh, mm -hmm. In other words, this this is right. not a big messy anointment or, or you know, there's more to go. Here, this is just a the beginning a hint she's, of what's going to happen. This is the beginning. This is a this is a foretaste. Yeah, and it's a foretaste of what's going to be done later. Let's take a look at Luke, and here we have a huge difference. So go to Luke 7. And you'll notice already there's a huge difference because it's, instead of close to the end, it's close to, closer to the beginning. 7 beginning at verse 36. One, and and it take, it's taking place in Galilee. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. Oh, here we go. This is interesting. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who was touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, 
Simon. <laughs> Simon. Aha. I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Notice the connection there with oil on the head, feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence she has shown great love, but the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Interesting, massive differences. And yet, lots of similarities. Differences, the location is different and the time is different. It's the feet now being anointed and dried or wiped with her hair. Ointment is being applied. Okay, all that. Feet are being kissed. Feet are being kissed. Uh, her name, she is not identified, but she is called the sinner. And that becomes the focus then of what she's doing and why she's doing it. No mention of burial. No mention of burial. This That's is not a preparation big. for funeral. That is huge. Yeah. However, it's not because she's doing this in a, in, in a sense as, as an act of contrition for being a sinner and her sins are forgiven, what does Jesus' death do for the world? It brings forgiveness of sin to the whole world. So you can see that there is a kind of connection. It's loose. That sounds like a preacher talking to you. Well, think about the theology endemic, though, in Matthew and John. It is in full accord with that. I keep thinking about Luke. He, the dang and guy Luke can always around. just yeah Luke, Luke, Luke can around. always just spin a story can he? Yeah, well, the he can he spin does. a tale. Yeah, now and I mean he can forgive sins without dying. Oh yeah, he sure can, and he does he just here. Did. He does here. He does here. But the Pharisees caught that too. It's just a different. Yes, it, they did. It's just yet another way of doing that. There's some implication also that this was at least that this was a custom to. Uh, he, he, he sort of criticizes the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee, not leper. That's interesting. Simon, <laughs> yeah. uh, some of them say, well, then what's the difference? The <laughs> uh, yeah. like Simon, the Fer- <laughs> Simon the Pharisee. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what the Pharisees are. <laughs> Simon the Pharisee doesn't anoint his head, doesn't give him a kiss, doesn't wash him, doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And yet she does and goes beyond it hugely. And she has been forgiven much, apparently. The implication is he thinks he has very little to be forgiven of, which is this arrogance that many of the Pharisees had. Now, so it's, it's a much weaker connection, but it's still essentially the same story. Now, now, interestingly enough, in some ways, you can see an evolution from Mark to Matthew and Matthew to Luke 
in some ways away from the basic story and in other ways to the basic story. And form critical analysis of the story found in John finds several Semitic references and several other indicators that what we have is yet another one of those early, early, early stories from the earliest layer of the oral tradition. This story then got adjusted. The place is the same in Mark and Matthew. It's a completely different place in Luke. He wants to use the story differently. It's, it's before and in preparation for his death in Mark and Matthew, Luke decides he wants to use it differently. The identification of the woman is lost in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. But in John, we have an identification of who it is. And the character of who it is is in complete accord with the picture that we have of Mary and Martha, though. Of Mary being the one who sits at the master's feet and learns from him while Martha is serving, cooking food and getting stuff ready. So, I mean, it's in accord with the image of, of these two women that Mary would be the one to do this. And there have Absolutely. been some scholars who have speculated, and Brown is one of them, uh, speculated that the original form in the oral tradition of the story links it to Mary and Martha and Lazarus and actually has that as the original formation of the story. The original event occurred in this way. And then when it got retold over time and got into Mark's gospel, thanks to Peter or whatever, however you want to understand that, it got shifted a little bit. The identity of who it is got lost. Peter got old, forgot about who did it. And, and it got shifted to, from Lazarus's house to Simon the leper's house. I, it's connected with someone who had received a great gift from Jesus, a healing, but the identity got lost, and therefore also the identity of the woman got lost. And then by the time it gets to Luke, uh, it's, it's a great sinner who's doing this. And the whole bit about the selling for the 300 denarii gets dropped totally. All that stuff gets completely lost. Fascinating. Uh, the story as it's told in John is coherent with everything else we know about Mary and Martha. From and, who? Huh? Where does, the, where does our knowledge of them come from? Apart that, from John. Um, there's the story of, of Mary and Martha. When, when Martha comes and whines to Jesus about Mary nice. sitting at Jesus' feet and learning from him when she should be helping her in the kitchen. You know, no one's in the kitchen with Martha here, and she's kind of mad, mad about it. And so she comes and whines and says, why isn't she helping out in the kitchen? And Jesus says, you know, Mary will not be taken from Mary. She's chosen the better half. She's chosen the, the better part. Uh, you're doing what you're called to do. She's doing what she's called to do. The depiction of, of, of Martha and Mary in John chapter 12 is in accord with what we have from Luke. So it's Luke chapter 10. Take a look at Luke chapter 10. Yeah, here it is. Beginning at verse 38, Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42. Now, as they were on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, so she came to ask to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. 
But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. So here she is serving. Mary is sitting at his feet and learning from him. And that's kind of the depiction of what we have going on in chapter 12 of John's gospel, where it says, they gave, uh, uh, verse 2, they gave a dinner for him. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those at the table. And Mary took a pound of costly perfume and made it made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. Luke contains an image of Mary and Martha, sisters, where Martha is the industrious service one and Mary, the younger one, is sort of the one who is interested in spiritual stuff. And that's exactly what we see in John's Gospel, both in some ways, in a, in a sense, back in 11, but especially in 12, where Martha is serving and Mary is sitting there doing spiritual stuff, in this case, anointing Jesus' feet and wiping them with her hair. So it's a fascinating story of an anointing of Jesus. Mark and Matthew both agree it belongs just before the death of Jesus here, just before the Passover. Uh, they don't agree with John as to the names of the people involved, i.e. whining about the, the, uh, the, 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 the usage of the material rather than selling it and giving the money to the poor. And they don't identify the woman, but they, but they agree that it happened in a similar way. And then Matt, Mark and Matthew say it was head, not feet, which is a rather major difference. Yet, it could be that maybe Mark got confused as to what it was that was anointed. Possible. Where, where does the story of washing the disciples' feet come in? As That's going to be during the Last Supper. That's several days yet to come. Well, this would almost be taken away from that if you got Mary washing Jesus' feet. Yeah, Mary washes Jesus' feet with, with the nard and, and, what, and, her, and her hair, and then and Luke with her tears and yeah. hair, as well as the nard. And then in John, he, Jesus turns around and washes the disciples' feet. So, fascinating stuff. Well, I, I think the, a major invention of John, or difference, uh -huh. is, this, is the relationship between... Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Okay, Lazarus is totally uh, unique to John. The yeah, introduction. I mean, I mean he, he's a, he escaped the other three Gospels yeah. even existing. Apparently. No, Mar Mary and Martha make it into Luke, but they don't make it at all. It is interesting. In, 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 in but Lazarus doesn't make it all into Luke in, in the form of their brother. Yeah. What's he makes it as that? the guy who the poor guy who dies at the rich man's gate. <laughs> yeah, the other Lazarus, we hope. <laughs> but we don't know if that's Lazarus, Lazarus. We exactly. just know that it's a Lazarus. But, but here he's their brother. That's, that is, hmm. that's, a, that's interesting. And then we know from archaeology that there was a family of a Lazarus, a Mary, and a Martha who lived in Bethany in the first century whose ossuary with their bones is found outside the city. There seems to have been, first of all, 11 and 12 indicate, I mean, it's very clear that they've had a pre-existing relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty clear, almost undeniable, that there was a, a, a couple of sisters, Mary and Martha, who were part of that inner circle of followers, but not disciples of the 12, but 
the inner circle of followers who were very loyal to Jesus. And that was known in the early church that Mary, there were a Mary and Martha who did this. And that they apparently probably were from Bethany. Although there seems to be some question about that later on by the time Luke gets to writing. The, the other thing is that it looks at least, it just in, in general, that what we have here is a woman, possibly Martha, whose husband has died and whose brother who is ill has come to live with her and her, and her sister has either come to live with her or who never left. And now Lazarus is sort of taking over the duties as the man of the house. He then dies, which would be an tra utter tragedy for a situation like this because there is no indication that there's a husband in either case, Martha or, 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 or Mary. And so, you know, Jesus um, comes in and he has raised Lazarus back to life and now this is an offering of thanksgiving for that. Mm -hmm. But she is, she is showing her faith through her works. Hmm. Her response of faith. Her, her faith actually becomes this action. It's, not, it's, it's the works that flow out of faith and it's the, the works that actually make up what faith is here uh, in that her action it expresses her love of Jesus, which is a, a part of faith. Her love of Jesus and her devotion to Jesus and her thanksgiving to Jesus and all of that. Whereas Martha's way of doing that is to serve. Mary's way of doing that is to do this, which is another kind of service. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why Pete didn't ask me that question. I don't know where he got that from. <laughs> it looks like he's given more value to, uh, to John. John is, and well, John and Luke both get more value to Mary than they are. Uh, John, uh, John and Luke both value Mary's action higher. Exactly. But if you look at the way in which the Mary and Martha are depicted in chapter 11, it's in coherence with how they're depicted in Luke, and it's coherence yeah. with how they're depicted in chapter 12. Martha is the more practical one. Mary is the more emotional, spiritual one. That's a coherence across the Gospels. Yes. But the, and also the three of the four have the, you always have the poor with you, right? It's, it's yes, Luke, Mark contains that, John contains that, Matthew contains that. Luke, because they've completely stripped that whole death part out of it, loses it. Yeah, but I thought you said they had the poor with you in Luke too. I thought that was four. All four of them now. No. Well, not, in this, not with this no. Luke didn't say that? No, Luke strips that whole death part yeah, out. Yeah, he does, but not the poor part. And Well, no, it's her forgiveness of her sins that is is what is becomes the focus of that. At least that's how I remember it. Well, yeah, that's the focus, but I really thought that he said something. Um, no, Math, Mark, and, Mark and John contain... Uh, the poor with you always, the poor with you always. Matthew, the poor with you always, but Luke, Jesus forgives the woman. And that's it. I think that, that could be a major focus of the story. Is, is the poor with you always? Yeah, trying to, trying to get to that point. You have the poor with you always, you don't have me with you. Well, that's because you don't have me with you always, but you have the poor with you always. So. You're doing something for me because I'm temporary. I'm going to die soon. This is getting him ready for that in Mark, in Matthew, and in John. It's getting him ready for that. 
Whereas in Luke, it's completely dropped out. That's right. So the focus of the story has shifted in that sense. And the purpose for doing it has, in a sense, shifted. In a sense. I I think it also has to do with with, uh, balancing eternal ideas versus temporal ones. You know, you're you're not going to solve every darn problem here day after tomorrow, you know, so, so... you can Keep feed the poor balance, and feed know. the poor and feed the poor and feed the poor and still, still have poor. Yeah. That doesn't mean don't feed the poor. No. It means don't get wrapped around the axle because you haven't solved the problem. Precisely. That's, you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right on that. That's exactly correct. Let's keep going. Um, when the great crowd, verse 9, so let's pick it up at verse 9. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there... They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. And there is, of course, a tradition that they actually succeeded in doing that after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That is a citation. This kind of reminds me of what Matthew would do frequently. Here John is doing it. Yeah, there aren't a whole lot of these. No, that's pretty limited in John. And that's found in Zechariah 9.9 in the Old Testament. So Hebrew Bible, so let me turn to that. Zechariah 9.9. This is one of the references to the triumphal entry of the Messiah into Jerusalem following, at the establishment of the Davidic kingdom. Zechariah 9.9 in that expectation for the coming for the coming of the uh, Messiah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they keep that. He's kind of riding on two. Which one is a really big butt? Or, <laughs> or he has one foot on one and one foot on the other, and he's like skiing? I don't, I'm not sure. Mary's on no, the other one. Mary's on the colt. colt. That would be... Riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Oh. That, that colt foal of a donkey no, could be... could on, uh, Humble and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It, oh. it, it, it could... It could be that the second line, this is a poetic couplet, so it's not just a donkey, it's, it's a, worse than a donkey. foal of a donkey. Right, like and a colt. a colt is the male. Yeah. It's only one. On a colt, the it's, foal of a donkey. It's pretty so, small. It, so we're talking a small, small one. Two, two maybe 
three years old is a cold, yeah. but no more than that. Very small, very young. So that on a colt, the foal of a donkey, it modifies on a donkey. Here, in John, in my NRSV, they left, they, they've combined it, they've put it together. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. <laughs> they fixed it. Yeah. And they probably, that's probably because they're quoting from the Septuagint, and the Septuagint oh. probably fixes it, too. A mare gives birth yeah. to a colt, mm -hmm. male mm -hmm. offspring. Mary gave birth. <laughs> That's the imagery. That's one of the images. You just picked it up. Well, but I think Zechariah is, is harkening back to stories about David. Yes. Yeah, this is a reference back to, the, to David. The Messiah is sort of the second David in this concept. And here he is. He's entering victorious, having done what the Messiah does. That's interesting. Because this is happening before he does it. The, you know, when you first started reading that, it sounded like Isaiah. If he'd have said he was also going to be, uh, have you know, getting hurt and get sticks in his in his skin and all that, it'd be just Isaiah. The, don, the the remark in my Bible down here it says, "Warlike kings rode on horses, and in chariots. The king of peace on a donkey's colt." This says the mule that David rode on mules before they predated horses. Uh huh. But I thought a mule came from. Well, not horse. well. Not quite, the but you yeah. and donkey are different. Yes, they, yeah, they are. are different. Yes, they are. Yeah. They are. I thought David was. I'm not sure what what stage that was, but it was a sign of cocky humility or something mm -hmm. like that. Cocky <laughs> humility. Aware, you're aware of this here. We're, you're <laughs> making a point. So, so, so you're, you you're making a point. I see. Look at the proclamation. Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We 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 say that all the time. Mm -hmm. The king of Israel. So here they are. They're affirming him. as, the, as This is all messianic affirmations. For messianic expectation, all of this is just smack dab in the middle of it. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We told you this was going to happen. We told you if you didn't get rid of this Jesus that he was going to do this. And now look. They're proclaiming him the Messiah. We've got to get rid of him. John really milks the Lazarus story. Yeah, he sure does. Pages and pages of discussion of... Yeah, that's why they're following Jesus because they want to see Lazarus too. Here at the very end... It becomes sort of the catalyst for it all. Mm -hmm. The Lazarus story gets, as you say, milked here extensively. This sign, the greatest of them all, becomes the impetus for proclaiming him, essentially, the Messiah, openly now. So all they had to do was kill Lazarus, and this would all be dead. That was what they were going to try to do, kill Jesus and Lazarus. Get them both. Of course, you know, you just kill Lazarus, but you don't kill Jesus. It could be that Jesus could oh, turn he does it again. And raise really him from the dead. Oh my God! <laughs> a daily miracle. You get the time. Does it again? And, but think about it. If you if you are looking for a Messiah, can you think of a better Messiah to have than one that can raise you from the dead when you die fighting against the Romans? That's the kind of Messiah you want. 
So of course they're going to flock to it. <laughs> oh, but the Greek, but the Pharisees, you'd have the Hebrews killing. Kind of like what happened in a way. Mm-hmm. Verse that's inverse to what the Hebrews did. Mm, uh-huh. Interesting. So here we have Palm Sunday. <laughs> this is it. This is Palm this Sunday. Is, yep. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. They're laying down palm branches and proclaiming, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Or the king of Israel, or whatever. And then, of course, this citation from Zechariah, this messianic wow. expectation. Um, and then that, I mean, John brings us right up to it. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came. That's interesting. Greeks. What kind of Greeks? They'd be kind of God-fearers. Yes, they would. would Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. Mm -hmm. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus has flappers. You You know what a flapper is, don't you? In Gulliver's Travels, in Laputia, all great leaders had flappers. And flappers were people who would sit there and flap or speak to and sort of serve as a barrier between the little people and the great people. And you could always tell the importance of a great person by how many layers of flappers existed between, between the great person and you. And if there was a lot of flappers, I mean, you had to go and, and, and ask somebody, I want to see him. And then he turns and talks to somebody else, flaps their ear. This guy wants to see him. And then he turns, this guy back over there wants to see him. And if the more layers you've got, the more important you are. And, and here Jesus is given a degree of importance. These nothing Greeks come and ask, hey, look, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And Philip told Andrew. Now, why didn't Philip just go straight to Jesus? He tells Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. What the heck does that have to do with these Greeks asking to come see Jesus? That sounds like that stuff that he said way back there. Uh It's almost exactly what he said earlier. It is. It is almost exactly what he said earlier. (laughs) Just in case you forgot. Or you Here we have Jesus launching into a sermon that doesn't have anything to do with these Greeks wanting to come see him, or does it? And, and why do they approach a guy who's from... Bethsaida? Bethsaida Beth- instead of uh, Ptolemy. But Bethsaida is a heavily Greekified city in the oh. northern Galilee region. Okay. So the even the Greeks would be like spreading if I die and I'm glorified. Even these people... They knew them. that... They probably knew that Philip spoke Greek. So they could talk to him without any problems. They say, we want to meet Jesus. And then Jesus, and then, then Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. And it says, 
and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. <laughs> and they said, yeah. He doesn't say, yeah, sure, have him come over here. No. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. <laughs> I'm going to get him glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless, and you keep on expecting this, these yeah. Greeks to get addressed. Yeah. Yeah. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. Oh. But if it dies, it bears much, much fruit. So long as I'm here now, I'm just a single Jew. But if I die, then the fruit that will be born is not just amongst the Jews, it'll be amongst them all. Given the, given the, Jew, the, the Greeks who want to meet him, that might be the context here. That might be how you can apply this. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Well, that seems, I mean, that's an extremely famous statement and very similar to what we've heard before, <laughs> yeah, exactly. like rerun time again. Those who love their life lose it. I mean, if you want to, if you grip on and hang on to your life, you're, you got nothing. You got nothing. In the end, you're going to be dead. Those who hate their life, prefer less their life. That word there is misuo. It, it's not ultimate hate. It's, it's to prefer their life less mm -hmm. in this world will keep it for eternal life. So if you're less concerned about your life and more concerned about other things than about spiritual things is the implication, then you'll keep it. You'll keep your life for eternal life. Keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. So if these Gentiles, if these Greeks want to follow him, they've got to realize it may very well mean that you've got to prefer me over life. It may be very, very tough. You have not been willing to become a Jew because you've been worried about giving up a little bit of skin, gentlemen, or giving up your favorite diet and how you dress and what you know, what you eat, and 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 you're you're gonna have to give up possibly your life if you follow me. But if you're willing to do that, that's good. But he, he's not he's not criticizing or anything, no. reproaching these Greeks because his audience, he's not, John's audience, is Greeks. Right? He's or, not re mm -hmm. well. He's not reproaching his audience so much as he's saying, following me carries with it a pretty heavy price but it's the best thing you can possibly yeah. do. And the whole audience anyway is Gentile. The audience of the gospel is Gentile. This is written not to the folks who are there in Jerusalem in 33 AD. This is written to the folks reading the gospel in 93 AD, <laughs> essentially. And, then, and they perceived at least that, that following him was, was at the risk of their lives at this time. Yeah, these Greeks wanted to meet Jesus. They wanted to follow him. And the risk is you may have to give up your life for that. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty tall order. Now my soul is troubled. Hmm. Paragraph change. Now yeah. my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. Which I said. Few chapters back, if you recall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. He already took care of that. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Lots of hours he's come to here. 
Father, glorify your name. Sounds like a prayer. It is a prayer. Then a voice came from heaven. Oh, wow. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That's kind of similar to, to when Jesus is not, not baptized in John, but when Jesus is baptized in the Gospels or to the transfiguration, where Jesus is pointed out by the voice in the cloud saying, you know, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Here, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it. Wow. And said that it was thunder. <laughs> Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. This is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. What does that mean? What does that mean? The ruler of this world will be driven out. I hope he's not talking about Satan again. Well, in the Jewish death, in the Jew, in the in the Jewish understanding, Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the world. The, that's why in the temptations in the wilderness, over in Matthew and in Luke. It was reasonable for Satan to say, look, the kingdoms of the world, I will give them to you if you will worship me. He could. They were his. That understanding was endemic both in Jewish and in early Christian thought. That may be what's referenced here. But the real ruler, and it falls from Satan, is the real ruler of the world is indeed death. Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. Are we still waiting for that or what? Well, the proclamation of the church has been for 2,000 years that that happened at his death and resurrection. One of the interesting and, characteristics between the East and the West is how the East and the West observes and views the Christ event. The West, thanks to Augustine, sees the Christ event as the victory over sin. His death on the cross and his resurrection articulates a victory over sin. The East, under the teachings of Irenaeus, proclaims that Christ's death and resurrection on the cross proclaims a victory over death Thank you. and the bringing of eternal life. Now, both sides accept the opposite side's important proclamation, but where do you put your weight of of evidence or your rate of proclamation. You put that weight on one or the other. John reflects that Eastern idea, the idea that would become very powerful in the Eastern church, in the, in the Orthodox church in the East. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. The, this world will be judged. It's de death will be judged and defeated, in other words. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Again, a reference to these Greeks asking to come see Jesus. All people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he would die. He was to die. Be lifted up on the cross, in other words. The crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. That's interesting. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is the Son of Man? 
And Jesus said to them, The light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you... Not walk while... It's like a third time. Kind of like a fortune cookie. <laughs> the light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness may not overtake you. We've heard this too. Uh-huh. If you walk in the darkness, you do not know where you are going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become children of light. Did he answer their question? Did he promise you an answer to that question? question? <laughs> <laughs> what? 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 What was the question? Exactly. The question was. Originally, the question was: We have heard from the from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up, i.e., that the Son of Man must die, that the Messiah dies? Remember, Messiahs don't die. They're victorious. They reign supreme. They reign forever. The kingdom of David was to be forever, and the Messiah was going to defeat the powers and forces of darkness, exemplified by the Roman Empire, and set up the kingdom of David that would be forever, the new kingdom of God on earth. And, and Messiahs, therefore, don't die. But here he's saying they die, and they're saying, wait a minute now, that's not what the Messiah, that's not in the Messiah's job description. What are you talking about? That's not what Isaiah and Psalms and all those. No, stuff. who is this son of man? And Jesus' answer to them isn't, oh, come on now, I've got to die in order that I might be raised, in order that the Messiah might be victorious eternal. No, he doesn't say that. Instead, he says this kind of a cryptic statement, which kind of lead, which between the lines is saying, "Hey, look, if you had spiritual sight, you'd know the answer to this question." The light. But he just yeah. told them about the wheat, and wheat's got to die. The, yeah, he, he just told them. He just told them that. Had they been listening, they would have heard it, and that's kind of what he's saying. The light is with you for a little longer. He's the light. He's going to be there a little longer. Walk while you have the light. Grow, learn while you have the light so that the darkness may not overtake you. If you walk in the darkness, you do not know where you are going. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become children of light. And this is the crowd he's talking to now. He's back talking to the crowd. He's back talking. Well, unless it's these Greeks that have come to hear him. I, I, I can't tell. I, I'm not sure. I think that it may very well be the mixture. His disciples and these Greeks and some others who are hanging around. But in reality, his audience is the people who are reading John's gospel. In reality. But in the setting, that's harder to determine. After, and, and of course... Even, even Gentiles would have an understanding of who the Messiah is supposed to be. The, the Samaritan woman at the well had an understanding of who the Messiah was supposed to be. Good Gentiles who are God-fearers will have studied the Torah and studied the prophets and would have come to an understanding by learning from the Jews who the Messiah was supposed to be. So even they could have made that, that objection. <laughs> After Jesus had said this, he departed and hid from them. He put on the cloak of invisibility again. Yep. Although he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. This was to fulfill the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Again, John doesn't do this much. Matthew doesn't. You can't can't read a paragraph without Matthew doing this kind of thing. John hasn't done this really at all, with only a few exceptions, like back at the very beginning, until now. 
Now he's done it twice in one paragraph, in one chapter. And so they could not believe, because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they might look, not look with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This, this almost sounds like a different writer, a different layer, or whatever you want to call it. But it is. From the Lazarus <laughs> narrative. This is extremely different from the Lazarus narrative. This is a, this is a more Jewish source, I think. Who, who was looking at this and saying, these people didn't believe because God didn't want them to believe. These references, of course, are to this Isaiah reference mm -hmm. in Isaiah, here in John 12, 38, and then John 12, 40. A bunch of Isaiah. It's 39. Yeah, in, in Isaiah 6, verse 9, it says, And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. And 10, Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. So that's, that's the reference from 40 from Isaiah, uh, from, from John 12, 40. Mm -hmm. Now, back up here in verse 38. Mm -hmm. That's from Isaiah what? 53.1. Yeah. And who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's that initial affirmation. Isaiah 53 is an incredibly powerful passage in the Suffering Servant series, which which Jews didn't apply to the Messiah. It was the church that looked back at Jesus and saw the suffering servant motifs in Isaiah as being messianic in nature and their redefinition of what the Messiah is supposed to be in the first coming. And, and hence the suffering servant gets shifted from being all the people of Israel to being Jesus the first coming of the Messiah as the suffering servant. And Isaiah 53 contains all of that imagery. And it's extensive. It's, it's, it's extensive. Here we have a hint to that here at the very beginning. This was to fulfill the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah, look who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. And so they could not believe because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they might not look with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, which is, of course, a reference to what happened much later when all Christians were put out of the synagogues for their affirmations of faith. For they loved human glory more than glory that comes from God. Ooh, that's a little bit of a judgment there. I mean, here's, here, you gotta, you gotta realize, here you got the Jehanine church. These Jew, Jewish Christians have just been put out of synagogues a few, a, a decade or two decades earlier, and they're still being put out to synagogues when they come to profess Jesus as the Messiah. And here they're looking back and saying, those dirty, rotten, those, those weak, 
believers who were Pharisees didn't want to be put out of the synagogue even then. Therefore, they kept their faith in Jesus secret. That's what they're saying. That's what they said. So obviously they didn't have those particular Pharisees that were so weak did not have their hearts and heads hardened no. by someone. No, as it says, but nevertheless, never, verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43, for they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. He had that kind of same theme with some acknowledgement from Caiaphas, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is unique. The, the, the big wigs really knew what was going on, but they didn't. No, they didn't really. They didn't believe it. They didn't. Well, they, well, they, they believed it. They, they yeah. believed, but they didn't. Take away their power. They, they, they knew it. They understood it, but they refused to accept it because it contradicted their expectations, and it it challenged their authority with the people. Therefore, they wanted to to get him out, put him out of their misery, so to speak. What's this mean when it, it says hypocrisy to the? Exactly. When, when, when 41, when Isaiah said this, because this little, you know, going back and Isaiah, history, read, revisionist read, thing again. Read, read yours. Read, Isaiah read. said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yeah, that's that's this understanding or that the church's interpretation of Isaiah as applying to Jesus. you got to remember, when this was written, when, when, when all of the, when, when the, church, the New Testament period believers, were writing the Gospels, and when Paul was doing this too, and they took these affirmations of the suffering servant and applied them to Jesus, the Jews are going, no, we're the suffering servant. Look at the history of the Jews. And of course, they have since then really said that. Yeah. They look at the Holocaust, for instance, as an example of the Jews as the suffering servant. And, and therefore, they sometimes take rather extreme objection to Jesus getting all of this stuff applied to him by the church. And they take objection to it. And that's kind of what John is saying here. He's saying, oh, no, wait a minute. Isaiah saw this. And we have always misunderstood him until now. That's what the church was saying. That the Jewish people misunderstood these messianic affirmations and believe they applied to the entire, the suffering servant was the entire people of Israel and not a reference to the Messiah. The church got it right and said, okay, it applies to Jesus. Looking backwards at it, they mm -hmm. could then say that. Well, it's, it's saying, since we know this is true about Jesus, Isaiah, as the prophet who said this, certainly he must have understood He it. would have known it was Jesus even before, how many hundreds of years before Jesus? And yet, if you take a look... Well, that's seen the telescope thing? Yeah, they did it backwards all, all again. Is, is one. Mm. Not yes, only that, think about you. it. There's, there's this understanding of, of, of prophetic utterances in Judaism, which says that when the prophet looked back and it looked into the future, he would see everything as if it was right here, not knowing that there were multiple mountain ranges in time. It all kind of became flat to him. That's how the Jews would then talk about the prophecy as time would telescope out and it became further and further and further removed from the original articulation by the prophet. So the prophet was talking about, well, I don't know, next six years maybe, 
you know, within the immediate future. I mean, the king did this bad thing, and therefore there's going to be this punishment from God, and it's going to happen, you know, next Tuesday or within the next few years. Well, when when it either didn't happen that way, interpretations of the prophet's articulation started to stretch it out. Jeremiah was one of the few ones who kind of talked about prophecies both immediately and a little further. The others seemed to didn't, didn't seem to really get that idea. Jeremiah lived a long time, and therefore he saw prophecies and he made prophecies that were short-term that comes to pass, and he talks about it. See, I said this would happen, and it did. And then he expected other things to take longer. Isaiah is more similar, and you got the you know multiple layers of Isaiah and, and, and presumptions with regards to theories with regards to you got the Isaiah school with Isaiah and second Isaiah and third Isaiah even well whatever you understand you got these you've got these articulations of prophecy that are always articulated for the then and there and then has to be interpreted over time by the people who come later. And therefore, you get these ideas like multiple fulfillment of these prophecies, where you had it fulfilled here and you have it fulfilled again. And anytime the circumstances meet with the problems that the prophets saw going on at the time, you could have a fulfillment of it again. And that's exactly how the church understood it then when it looked and it saw in Jesus the suffering servant and applied all of these affirmations about the suffering servant to Jesus. And that's what we have going on right here in verse 41. Isaiah said this because other ancient authorities read when. Because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. Then Jesus cried aloud, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever, believe, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. I thought Jesus was in hiding here. That's what it said earlier. Just a little light. After this, back up here in verse 36. After Jesus had said this, he departed and hid from them. Although he had performed many signs, no people didn't believe in him, although some of the authorities actually believed in him, but they were afraid to admit it because they were afraid of the Pharisees and they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue because they loved human glory more than glory from God. Then Jesus cried out. Huh? Mm. This kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, it does. Well, it's, it, it suggests that it's, it's a... Soliloquy. Yeah, this is a very good choice. That, that is exactly what this is. It's like a soliloquy. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. This is kind of picking up that theme that he articulates earlier in the chapter and, and earlier in the book. <laughs> and is affirmed about him too. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Who the heck ever hears somebody preach on this one? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. That is powerful. 
You know, this is one of those things that I need to preach on sometime. I like that. That's good. I really like that. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge. Okay, here we go. And it's on the last day, too. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore, I speak just as the Father has told me. So when you hear me talking, you're hearing God talk. He's already said that. Of course he's already like said it. three that. times. Maybe but now three. he's saying it again. Hey, 44 to the end of the chapter is, is a soliloquy. It's Jesus coming right. up and saying this, proclaiming it for the audience to hear. And this, this, is, this, is, a, this is a eschatological. <laughs> Don't you love those words? <laughs> eschatological in times affirmation or proclamation of Jesus. One of my favorite... Um, stories or jokes is um, it was written on the bathroom wall at Duke Divinity School in the men's room at the, on the lower level of the library. And it's, and you go in and you would sit down in the third stall from the left and you close the doors on the wall in there. It's written, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the ontological manifestation of our eschatological expectation. Oh, thank you. And Jesus said, say what? <laughs> yeah. Because theologians love those big words. Eschatology is end of times. End of times. And, and this is kind of what he's doing here. He is setting up, okay, when we come to the end of time, you will be judged by my words because my words are the Father's words. And your failure to accept me and follow me will become your own you will, in fact, your failure will become your own sentence, your own judgment. You will judge yourself by your own failure to follow my word. Your failure will be measured against me, against my words. That's nice then. No need. There's no need for me to judge. So they did kill the and it, and it, no need. it is said a little differently than he said it before. Sure. I mean, <laughs> assuming sure. these are collections of whoever's sermons, you know, they're, the they're being picked and, and used here because they were understood and, and uh -huh. the tradition behind them and they, they were understood to be the words of Jesus. Exactly. There's there's I agree completely on that. You've got here what essentially is a statement, an eschatological sermon of Jesus about what judgment will be like at the end. And it comes it's it, it's situated at the end of this chapter with the Palm Sunday and the people refusing to believe and why they refuse to believe, and all of that that went with it, and then you've got this statement about judgment. Why? Because you've probably got some people out there in the congregations there in the Jehanite community who are saying, oh, those dirty, corrupt scoundrels, they won't believe me. And, and here's the sermon that says, well, Jesus said, no. Judgment comes in Jesus' own words, the words of the Father, at the end, at the eschaton. I think you almost have to conclude after getting to the end here that that this bit about the Greeks is an artifact for which we have totally lost the context. It's been injected. It was like it got drafted in to try to connect, yeah. probably try to connect 
the current church, Jehannine church, the Greeks in it, to the story. And then... But they sort of get brushed aside. They get brushed aside. I, and it occurred to me that, that maybe, maybe there was there were some associates of Philip and Andrew in the community that they were trying to... Because you don't hear their names. Could be. It's interesting they were chosen other than possibly connections with the Greek community. Uh, it could very well be some connection with Philip and Andrew in there. Uh, notice who's not been very active in, uh, in, the, in almost the entire gospel. Peter. Yeah. Kind of, kind of, you know, well, he's there, but he's not active. He's he should not, be denying. He should be real negative. Long way. And for the most part, the disciples haven't been there at all. That's right. Except for on, to ask a few questions, to sort of be a sounding board to bounce stuff off a few times earlier on, and then suddenly they're not there at all. Except, they're there, they're except, there for the money, you know, and the poor. And, yeah, they're there to whine and complain about the nard. And that's, that's, right. that's right. Of course, that's 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 um, that's that's given to Judas and John. And then they're there to ask some questions is there, and to be Jesus's flappers. But is there a Jerusalem church at this this time in John's gospel? Well, in the nineties. Yeah, but in the nineties, I mean. Okay, by the nineties A.D., the Jerusalem. Um, well, that's that dark period. Uh, the Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70, and it became an entirely Greekified city. There were no Jews allowed in the Jerusalem territory itself. Jews lived up in Galilee still, up until about 135, but they could not live in Judea. That was against the law. The church that was founded in, in Jerusalem then was a totally Greek church. The bishops of Jerusalem from the 100s and 200s AD are all Greek-named folk who are all Gentiles. But in 90 AD, I don't know the degree to which their strength existed. The, the former Jerusalem church had evacuated to uh, Damascus and Antioch and far north Galilee, what we think of as Lebanon today and Syria, and then around into what we think of as southeastern Turkey. But that's the people who had been in the Jerusalem church who survived and who escaped and evacuated. Those would be Jewish Christians uh, who are quickly losing their Jewishness. And by 90 AD, they're probably on their, they're into their second generation now of post-synagogue worship. They're still angry, their parents especially, about having been tossed out of the synagogues. They're still really ticked off about that. And they are, uh, struggling with their identity. And they're very quickly becoming, going from being Jewish Jews, uh, Judaic, uh, Hebraic, Hebraic Jews, to being Hellenized or Greek Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, to being not Jews at all, but totally Christians. And that's a struggle that we kind of see in the Gospels, in especially Matthew and in John, we see elements of it. We see the elements of it. Because as I said back in the synoptic study, I, I tend to believe that Matthew is the gospel of that, that diaspora Jewish Christian community that you know, was in Damascus and Antioch. And there's a big debate as to where Matthew was written. And most of the church tends to think, and history tends to say, that Matthew was written in the Antioch region. And that's probably true. But it could have been, it could have been there or it could have been Damascus. Because those are the two places 
where the Jerusalem church was evacuated to, and that would have been the, the strongest Jewish Christian group. And by the, in the 70s and 80s, they still would have had a strong, cohesive identity. When, by the time you get into the, the end of the first century and on into the second century, however, that identity started to wane heavily as they started dying off. So right now, right now, it looks like to me, and I was thinking of this, he's, he's writing this for the Gentiles, for the Jews. I'm sorry, for the Greeks. Yeah, for the Greeks. It's not for the Jews. Well, it's for the church, and there are some so, Jewish Christians still left in it. But he, it's mostly a Gentile church. Right, and he only mentions the Greeks, I think, right here primarily, so he's not giving any guilt to the Greeks, correct? No. He's, he's In fact, later on, him. the death of Jesus is placed on the hands of the Jews heavily. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.